Ah, raw mornings at church, they can be tough, can't they? Um, I've been so reminded this morning that the world needs a saviour, doesn't it? The world is a broken place, a broken and a damaged place. It needs a saviour, and his name is Jesus. And we can unashamedly say that this morning, that we've come to know the saviour of the world. And uh, it just feels really important that we deal with some of these difficult things, actually, as we come together and as we worship. If our worship is not dealing with the real world, if our lives are not engaged with the real world, then somehow it seems to me we're doing church, we're doing our Christian lives wrongly, if there is such a phrase. It's good to bring the real world into our church situations. I'm really aware this morning that for some of us, lots of what we've heard will be very triggering. Um, Can I encourage you this morning to not race away, to spend some time just receiving prayer, perhaps from somebody that you've come with or from one of us. We'd be really pleased to meet with you. We have a saviour. His name is Jesus. Well, most uh, weekday mornings in our house uh, before school are exactly the same. We negotiate. Uh, We negotiate breakfast. We negotiate over showers. We negotiate over hair. Clearly, I don't. We negotiate over shoes Uh, We can negotiate over the the contents of lunchboxes, but by far the hardest negotiation of all that happens is our house is trying to get one of our small children out of their bed in a good mood. Um, So I thought it would be fun this week to encourage the said child to be sure that the first word out of her mouth, that rather narrows the field, doesn't it, Um, were positive and upbeat. So I gave her a challenge the night before. I said to her, tomorrow morning when you wake up, I wonder if you can try and do something. I wonder if you can try and say something positive to me as the first words out of your mouth that are going to make me feel a sense of joy and happiness as I enter into the day. And do you know it worked? The next morning, instead of moans and groans, these were the first words I hear. Daddy, I love you so, 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 so much. And I hate going to school. (laughs) But it was a good start. You know, the words we use have power, don't they? In fact, words are probably the most effective thing that we have to communicate who we are and how we are and what matters most to us. The words that we use can inflate, they can deflate, they can inspire, they can destroy. And therefore, we should choose our words so very carefully, note to self. This week, I stumbled across a a website that's dedicated to recording not the, the first words of a person when they, uh, when they wake, but the last known words of people moments before they died. Yet more cheery stuff in our service. But it made for really interesting and yet profoundly challenging reading. You see, as you read through this list of quotes, page upon page upon page, you start to get the sense that what people are saying in these moments are the things that really, really matter to them at a heart level. Some people called out to to God in their last words. I always think that's a really good move. Other people called out to parents or loved ones. Some offered apologies to people that they'd hurt or disappointed. Other people delivered some profound, some inspiring monologues, which, if I'm honest, put this sermon to shame. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, said this. He said, so little done, so much to do. Well, that resonates with the story of my life. Joseph II, in his dying words, a Roman Empire said this, Let my epitaph be, here lies Joseph, who was unsuccessful in all his undertakings. Well, there's a guy who needs some therapy. But perhaps the most depressing example known to some of us if we're over the age of about 50 is Tony Hancock, the comedian. Speaking to himself in his last TV monologue, he said this, What have you achieved? 
You lost your chance, my old son. You contributed absolutely nothing to this life. Nothing to leave behind me, nothing to pass on. It's really quite depressing stuff, isn't it? Now, I should say there were some encouragements in the list of quotes, but generally this was the tone of what people were sharing. It tended to be on the the half-empty side. But I wonder, how about you? How about me? What will you say if you knew you were about to die? Well, I'm fully expecting that in my dying moments, I'm going to say something really quite stupid. In fact, you can be sure of it. And then I'm going to spend the rest of eternity regretting the thing that I've just said. But what about you? Will you say something flippant or say something profound? Will you be somebody who says something depressing or will you say something encouraging? Have a think about that over lunch. It will be much more interesting than anything else you would have spoken about. You see, in our scripture reading today, we get to hear the last recorded words of Jesus. Not the words just before his death, but the last recorded words spoken in what I like to refer to as his in-between stage. He's died, he's risen again, he's still on earth, and he's ready and he's waiting, ready to go and be with his heavenly Father to be in the place of power and authority. And in his last words, Jesus, I sense, is giving his church his final instructions. And as he does this, he's saying, look, this is the most important thing in my kingdom. If you want to grasp one thing, then grasp this because it really, really matters to me. Now, Jesus doesn't share depressing or flippant words. In fact, he shares an invitation and he shares an encouragement. And it's an invitation and encouragement that's endured for the last 2,000 years, which is why we're still looking at it here today. So let's hear these words. If you've got a Bible with you, um, turn to Matthew 28, uh, chapter 6, sorry, verse 16. Words that we'll know well say this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Do you find that encouraging? There's room for doubt as you encounter Jesus, even as others are worshipping. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this passage has famously been referred to as the Great Commission. In fact, that's the label that's in my Bible. But this great commission perhaps might be better referred to as the great omission because so many churches and so many individuals simply aren't following Jesus' command. Now here at CBC, I'm so pleased to say that we have the great commission as an essential ingredient in our church vision statement. In fact, I think this vision uh, should be the statement of every single church, to be a church where the great commandment to love God and others the great commission to share our faith, what we're thinking about today, and the great priority to seek first the kingdom of God is being lived out in the lives of our members and our attendees. What a brilliant vision, but I wonder how are we doing? John Wesley was one man who really grasped what it meant to uh, live with this great commission. He's quoted as saying this, I want the whole of Christ as my saviour, the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for my mission field. But I wonder though, when I hear the words of Jesus in the Great Commission, unlike John Wesley, do I hear something that I know really, really well in my head, but perhaps I forget, or if truth be told, fear to put into practice in my life? 
You see, in his last recorded words, Jesus wasn't simply saying that the mission of the New Testament church was to stockpile loads of cash. He wasn't saying, well, look, your mission is to pad out the pews so they're really, really comfortable. Jesus never said, go and build buildings. Gulp. You see, we're the church who are about to build and embark on a build project. But bricks and mortar, Jesus is saying, is not the real mission and it should never be the mission. And I want to say so categorically to us as a church, the day our building becomes about a building bricks and mortar, we are going to give it up. That's not the mission. We're building for mission and ministry so that we can be even more effective in sharing the good news of Jesus with others. You see, according to Jesus, the ultimate mission of the church was so simple. It's to take this good news that we've discovered into the whole world and to make disciples of nations. Now, we enter today into this new teaching series, Reaching Out. Can you please just notice the word go in the middle of that word, that sentence, reaching out? Isn't that clever? <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Took me a long time to make that graphic. Reaching out. That's what's going to take us through the next five weeks, and it's going to help us think about what it means to be a missional church, a missional church, or what you're saying, yes, a missional church. You see, to be a missional church is to be the kind of church that Jesus commands us to be in the Great Commission, the kind of church that has this desire to fulfill Jesus' famous last words before his ascension. To be a missional church means to take this Great Commission to make sure it's not our greatest omission, to be a church that goes. Now, that sounds pretty scary, doesn't it, to be a church that goes? But I hope what you'll discover this morning is it doesn't need to be a scary endeavor. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Isn't this brilliant? The one who will determine the destiny of every single person in the world has given us an invitation to go out and speak in his name. What an invitation. The invitation that comes from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and it's the invitation that that individual Jesus makes to every single one of us who have invited Jesus to be our Lord and Savior without exception. Now, most Christians I speak to have this kind of awareness that they're on this planet for some greater purpose than just our career or just paying the bills or just loving our families or just being good citizens in society before ultimately we just end up becoming food for worms. It's not really that inspiring, is it? I live life so I can be food for worms. Most of us live with a greater sense of purpose. And for us as Christians, the Great Commission is it. Jesus' invitation, and it is an invitation, is to make an impact in this world that actually will outlast us here on planet Earth and in fact will go into the whole of eternity. Now, as with all invitations, we have a choice. How will we respond? Will we accept the invitation or will we turn the invitation down. So Jesus makes this invitation, and it's an invitation with a purpose. Listen again to what he says. He says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, the very construction of this sentence shows us that Jesus is placing his emphasis on a very specific strategy to make disciples. That's his strategy, to make disciples. 
And that purpose flows directly out of all that he's just said about his unquestionable authority that his father has given to him. Did you spot the therefore in the sentence? What came before the therefore? Jesus speaking about his authority, therefore go and make disciples. You see, Jesus is making it very, very clear in these words that to his first disciples that disciple-making is their primary task and their primary responsibility. Anything else that they were going to do in their mission, their ministry, and their Christian lives was subordinate to that primary task. It's a multiplying, replicating ministry of leading others and helping others not only come to faith, but also grow deeply in their relationship with Jesus. Well, here at CBC, and we often don't talk about this, and we should probably talk about it more, this invitation with a purpose is expressed in our mission statement. Faith that works. Know it, live it, share it. If you like, this is the the great commandment, the great commission, and the great uh, priority all rolled into one. And the great commission is the all-important filling in the middle of that sandwich. That's our priority. That's Uh, why this invitation is at the very heart of our mission statement. That's what CBC is here for. It should be central to everything that we do as a church, to make disciples. Archbishop uh, William Temple famously said way back in 1945, the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefits of its non-members. Isn't that brilliant? And it ought to be true. We don't exist for ourselves but we exist for the world that's out there to reach them with this good news. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus added some additional words. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. Now, I find that quite reassuring. All Jesus is asking me to be is a witness. Well, what does a witness do? Well, a witness simply tells of what Jesus has already done in history and a witness tells of what Jesus has done in my life. We have an invitation. It's an invitation with a purpose to make disciples. But two, this invitation comes with a method. Now, this is where we get to the scary bit because the method is go. Now, this is often the bit of the Great Commission which freaks more than a few Christians out because we're terrified that if Jesus says to me, go, then it means I have to move to the other side of the world and relate to some people I might struggle to relate with. The trouble is, if everybody goes, then nobody stays. But I want to suggest to us this morning that we can go by staying. Listen again to those words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, You'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. Jesus' mission was first to be a witness in Jerusalem or we might say in Christchurch. In all Judea might be Dorset, Samaria might be perhaps the rest of the world and then to the ends of the earth. Mission always begins at home. I'll never forget years back being challenged by somebody who said to me, If you're not even going to be a witness where you live, if you're not going to be a witness at home, then why on earth would God send you to the ends of the earth to be a witness? Mission begins at home. Mission starts in our own Jerusalem, in our Christchurch, before we ever get to reach Samaria or Judea, let alone the ends of the earth. But I wonder if you've ever pondered this thought. 
Jesus, this is a bonkers strategy. This idea you're coming up with, it really isn't going to work. You're sitting down and you're saying to 11 disciples, you 11, ragbag group, you're going to reach the whole world and this is going to be my strategy. As I draw towards a close, I want us to compare this morning two different evangelistic approaches. And the first one is capital E evangelism. Capital E evangelism. Evangelism with a big E. Now, if I was to ask you this morning, would would you please try and name the most famous evangelist you can think of? I can almost guarantee you, I could tell you, you would say the name. There you go. I was going to say Billy Graham. See what I did there? If you said another name, I was going to quickly change it. I wonder how many of us came to faith under the ministry or the influence, at least, of Billy Graham. How many of us trusted Christ? Yeah, some of us. Fantastic. Same response in the first service. Really encouraging. Well, let's suppose for a moment that Billy Graham could preach to 50,000 people a day, five days a week, and whenever he did that, he would see a 10% response rate of people becoming Christians. By the way, that's about the average. If you share your faith with 10 people, one of those 10 is likely to make a profession of faith. 5,000 people a day under those statistics would trust Christ under such a ministry. Now, that's brilliant, isn't it? Because that's about the same response that Peter saw, if you remember, on the day of Pentecost. Now, on that basis, each week, Billy Graham would preach to an audience of about 250,000 people, And of those 250,000 people, 25,000 of those would become Christians. Now, let's convert that into churches. Imagine for a moment he takes those 25,000 Christians and he makes 50 churches of 500 members. I mean, who wouldn't want a church of 500 members? What a load of hassle. (laughs) 50 churches of 500 people. In just one year, Billy Graham would reach 12.5 million people with the gospel And he'd see about 1.25 million people become new believers every single year. In one lifetime of, say, 50 years' ministry, on those figures, the greatest living of, or passed away now, evangelist, would see a staggering 62 million people become Christians. What a ministry. If he could sustain that, and if he could do that, 62 million people becoming Christians. Now, this capital E evangelism is crucial. It's part of the ministry of the body of Christ, and it's really important, and it's worthwhile. But I do want to suggest to us that this strategy falls short of fulfilling Jesus' commission that he gave to his disciples on at least three counts. First is the world's population is growing quicker than any evangelist with a capital E could possibly keep up with at 7.2 billion. Second, the world's population is unevenly spread around the world, and it simply wouldn't be possible to get all of the world's population into a single stadium to be able to hear these evangelists. And then third, seeing people come to faith in Christ is not the same thing as making disciples. Now, I praise God for Billy Graham's ministry, and I recognize he was totally committed to making disciples, not just converts. But I guess what I'm trying to help us do this morning is to see that this particular model, this particular approach to evangelism, which God has greatly blessed and he uses people for, only goes some way to fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, the trouble with that is it means we're not off the hook. We can't just leave it to the capital E evangelists. Now, what about a different model, one that perhaps we might better be able to relate to? 
Imagine for a moment a typical believer. Let's call him Joe. Now, Joe is learning to be a disciple of Jesus. He plugs in with his church week in, week out, and he listens to the teaching. He doesn't do anything particularly dramatic. He works in a regular job. But what he does do, however, largely unnoticed, is he's busy making friends with people who don't yet know Jesus. He's somebody who takes a really keen interest in their lives. He, he demonstrates authenticity and integrity, moral courage and compassion and empathy. The self-loving give of love of Jesus just kind of flows out of his life and it's kind of infectious, it's contagious. And because of the way he lives, other people ask him about the hope that he has. And every time he's asked, Joe just takes the opportunity to tell his friends about what Jesus is doing in his life. And then when one of them trusts in Jesus, Joe spends time with them to show them how to pray, how to read the Bible, how to get to know God better, and how to tell other people too about the new hope that they've discovered. Are you in for some maths this morning? Some of you loving the maths, some of you know. Well, let's assume for a moment that Joe gets to share his faith with just one person a week, and let's assume that in six months he sees just one person make a commitment for Jesus. After six months of Billy Graham's ministry, he's seen half a million people trust Jesus using the formula I spoke of before, and Joe has led just one person to Christ. Let's call him Fred. It's not much of a comparison, is it? And yet, here's the key. Instead of simply inviting Fred to church and perhaps join his small group, Joe explains to Fred how he too can be somebody who helps other people become Christians. In other words, fulfills Jesus' great commission. So during the second six months of that year, Joe and Fred make friends with people who don't yet know Christ. And every single week they get to talk about Jesus. And each of them have the joy of seeing one person become a Christian in the next six months. So at the end of that first year, there are now four whole disciples living faithfully for Jesus. Well, by now, Billy Graham's founded two and a half thousand churches of 500 people, and Joe's managed to get one small group going. Still no comparison, you might think. But let's not be fooled by the numbers. You see, something very, very radical is happening in average Joe's small group. You see, if those four disciples pass on what they know, which at this point in their journey might not be very much, but each one of them sees one person trust Jesus in the next six months and then disciples them to reproduce themselves in the same way, at the end of two years, there would be 16 disciples. After year three, there'd be 64 disciples. After year four, there'd be 256 and so on and so on. You see, using this strategy and this response rate, our small little band of disciples is doubling every single six months. And do you know how long it would take them to reach the whole world? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. One disciple has reached the whole world using this strategy. Now, what's the difference between these two evangelistic strategies? Well, the difference between, is between adding and multiplying, between adding names and training disciples who replicate. Here's a really challenging thought. If CBC were the only Christians in the world, I mean, imagine that for just a moment. Wouldn't it be ghastly? If CBC were the only Christians in the whole world using this strategy and taking Jesus' great commission seriously... We alone could reach the whole world in less than 15 years using this strategy. You see, Jesus really did know what he was talking about 
in the Great Commission after all. And what he was doing here was commissioning a movement that was radical and it was revolutionary, and yet at the same time, it was a strategy that was so simple and so practical that even I can manage it. Become influential in the lives of a few family and friends. Invest your life meaningfully into the life of somebody else so that they might just ask you for the hope that you have. And then you'll have opportunity to speak about Jesus. You see, God does call people to go to far-fung places, and I honor those of you amongst us this morning, and that's your call. God bless you. But for the vast majority of people, God calls us to go by staying, to bloom in the place where he's planted us. I want to close with a question. And the question is this, is what will you do with the invitation that Jesus has given to join in this incredible ministry that he's begun? He's given an invitation, and like all invitation, there's an RSVP waiting. Will we accept it? Or will we politely decline the invitation that we've been given? What an invitation to join in with something that will last for the whole of eternity. An invitation to be part of a mission and a ministry that could radically change the life of another person. What an invitation. And it's being made to me and it's being made to you today by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I wonder if I can invite... Paul, worship team, thank you for serving us so brilliantly this morning. (laughs) When Jesus gave this commission, 